Once upon a time, way, way back years ago in those ancient days known as the year 2007, once upon a time, it was so and it was not so that there was no poverty in Los Alamos County, which we know is not true. And yet that was the story I was receiving from folks in the county, from the general attitude milling about. Most of it was implicit. It had to do with how we talked about ourselves here. This is the wealthiest county in the United States. The average salary in Los Alamos County is six figures. We are all very highly educated people. We have had the resources to educate ourselves. We just didn't talk about it all that much. It was something that existed elsewhere. If we were helping people out, we were helping people out down in the valley where they really were very poor. And we have to help them. We have to, we have to show them how to lift themselves up and tell them how to solve their problems and send our money that way. That was the story, in the atmosphere at least. And then every once in a while, the story would be explicitly told. Very early on here, uh, my very first letter to the editor was in response to someone who had written in to the paper to ask, who are all these poor people in Los Alamos and why are they coming here? And my answer was, they were born here. They've lived here all their lives. It's not some discrete population that's been migrating this way, trying to get at that wealth and that education. No, it's been among us. But we have this tendency as human beings to want to create discrete categories, discrete populations out of those who we might think of as other than ourselves. The poor are a monolithic body that is self-contained and always will be that population. The addicted are a discrete population of people whose who's population never changes, or criminals are a discrete population of people. We like to make them out of those who don't quite meet up to whatever community standards we imagine we might be living by. And the basic content of my letter to the editor that day was that, no, people shift in and out of these things all the time. I mean, all of us, to some extent, are one or two bad days away from falling into the ranks of the poor. Disasters happen. I was the poor for a while until I wasn't anymore. But that's... That's what we like to do as human beings, categorize and other. Our Unitarian Universalist values want us to tell a different story. 
We affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of all people in our first principle, followed closely by the second, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Justice and equity happen to be our themes for this month as we tour through the values as they're written about in the new draft of Article 2. But those words have been there in some form or another throughout our religious history in the seven principles as we know them today, back In 1961, when Unitarians and Universalists first got together in that merger, the supreme worth of every individual and a goal of world community with brotherhood, justice, and peace, it's all there. And now, as we look at revising what our statement of values might be, it is expressed Justice and equity each getting their own value this time, and I want to focus on the equity question today. We declare that every person has the right to flourish with inherent dignity and worthiness. We covenant to use our time, wisdom, attention, and money to build and sustain fully accessible and inclusive communities. That is the value we're coming together to start to express together. That every person has the right to flourish. And I love that word. And I'm now going to pull up the notes on my phone that I didn't print out. What does it mean to flourish? The Health and Equity Policy Lab at the University of Pennsylvania has a bit to say on the subject, what does flourishing look like? A flourishing person is living a good, fulfilling life, a life with a sense of purpose. They have the ability to do what they want to do and be who they want to be. They have and are committed to building good mental health, physical health, and social health in all areas of their lives and those of their community members. This includes family, work, education, community, politics, economics, and more. A flourishing person has the ability to help their bodies thrive, their emotional needs met, the trust and cooperation to function in social settings, and the ability to use their reason for individual and collective ends. The flourishing person has got it going on. But how do we flourish, and how do we help others flourish? How do we stand up for the rights of everybody to flourish in that manner? The Health Equity and Policy Lab has a few suggestions in this same article, but they're very individually centered and have to do with shifting focus in yourself and making commitments to things. And that's, that's well and good. Everything starts from within but it doesn't answer the question of how we affirm and promote equity, flourishing for all throughout the community. It begins by getting over this 
kind of natural tendency to categorize and box up and make into discrete populations the other, the poor, the addicted, the criminal, the immigrant, what have you. When we talk about people as others, we are turning people into objects. Problems to be solved. We begin to affirm and promote flourishing when we can shift our vantage point from object to subject to view people individually as they are in their own right, not as part of some monolithic other that they may or may not be. And to make that happen, what we need to do is get proximate. That phrase comes to us from Brian Stevenson, a, a civil rights attorney who has worked on the Innocence Project, among other things, and was also our Ware lecturer at General Assembly in 2017. He says this, I think sometimes when you're trying to do justice work, when you're trying to make a difference, when you're trying to change the world, the thing you need to do is get close enough to people who are falling down, get close enough to people who are suffering, close enough to people who are in pain, who've been discarded and disfavored, to get close enough to wrap your arms around them and affirm their humanity and dignity. Sounds familiar. Stevenson sets out four rules for getting close and making a difference. I'm waiting. I want to affirm how you don't have to be embarrassed to say, I'm trying to change the world. I think we can change the world. And I have a simple little prescription. I think there are four things that we're gonna to have to think about. We're going to have to commit for poor and suffering and marginalized. We think we can change the world by staying just on Harvard's campus, by staying in places of power and privilege, staying just in our elected offices. If we care about injustice, if we care about inequality, if we care about poverty, if we care about disability, if we care about addiction and dependency, we're gonna to have to get close enough to those who are poor and excluded and neglected, addicted and dependent, to understand the nature of that problem. Second thing we're gonna to have to do is we're gonna to have to change these narratives. We have mass incarceration in America because we declared a misguided war on drugs. We said that people who are drug addicted and drug dependent are criminals. For alcoholism, we said that's a disease. And if you know somebody who's an alcoholic and you see them going to a bar, you don't think, oh, we'd better call the police. We have a different framework. But for addiction and dependency, we said those are criminals and we locked up hundreds of thousands of people. Now, I think that narrative has to change because I think what allowed us, what made us comfortable with those policy choices is what I call the politics of fear and anger. And I'm here to tell you that if we allow ourselves to be governed by fear and anger, we're gonna tolerate things we're not supposed to tolerate. That's how you get comfortable with inequality. That's how you get comfortable with injustice. That's how you get comfortable abusing people in ways that are clearly indecent and wrong. You do it because you've been given a narrative of fear and anger. 
that makes you think that that's justifiable. The third thing we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to stay hopeful. You have to protect your hope quotient, your hope dynamic. Because sometimes being in, in spaces like this can, can, can rattle you. The faculty are brilliant, but they're trying to complicate the world for you. And sometimes when the world starts to get complicated, you lose hope that you can do the things you thought you could do. You begin to actually no longer believe that that world-changing thing you were hoping to achieve, you can achieve. And so while you are dealing with the complexity of the world, you're gonna have to affirmatively work on protecting your hope. Your hope is vital to your capacity to change the world. I actually believe that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. And the fourth and final thing we're gonna have to do, and this is a hard one, we're gonna have to do things that are uncomfortable and inconvenient because we do not change the world by only doing the things that are comfortable and convenient. And I hate that because we're humans and humans are biologically and psychologically programmed to do what's comfortable. We like comfort. And that means that we're gonna to have to make a choice to do uncomfortable things, to change things. I tried to research my way out of this, I did. As a faithful alum of this university, I looked and did some research, and I tried to find an example where justice prevailed, where equality triumphed, and nobody had to do anything un uncomfortable or inconvenient. Can't find any examples of that. I've learned really simple things during my work. I believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I believe that for every human being. I think if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. I think even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. And justice requires that we know the other things we are before we judge you. I want to pick out two of Stevenson's rules this morning. One, change the narrative. Change the narrative to something that is not based in fear and anger. You've heard me time and again up here talk about the power of story and the stories we tell about ourselves and the stories we tell about our communities and the stories that we tell other people. They have power to shape attitude and reality. Interestingly enough, social scientists are just starting to delve into studies on this very topic and very early on in the research, they found at least on an individual level, the stories that we tell about ourselves, our self-conception has a way of drawing us into being the person that we're talking about in that story. Even if it's not true yet, it becomes true the more we tell the story. Narrative matters. And number two, get proximate. Stay close, be close with the people you profess to care for, that you want to help. Know them as people. We've had a lot of experience over the past several years in being able to get closer to the people we are trying to help. You can see it 
for several years running when we went on the Mexico missions with our friends at United Church when we took teens out on spring break to, to build houses for our community in Puerto Penasco in Mexico. We got close to the families we were building for. We got close to the community they were existing in. We would go and visit previous houses we built to see how people had turned a house into a home. We got to know the people that we were building for. And it creates a profound shift, especially for those moldable teenage minds heading out to do it. We've seen it in our relationship to our partner church in Romania. For many years, it was something that existed on paper, and we raised money during the collection in February to send off. But it wasn't until just before the pandemic. First, when Lazar and Erica came here to preach to us and share about their Unitarian faith in Transylvania, and then an invitation for us to come and join them. And several of us went out to go on that trip and get close to the people, become part of the family for a little while. And all of a sudden, that collection wasn't just money we were wiring off to some unknown destination. We knew what we were giving for, and we knew who we were affecting with that, and we knew we needed to keep that relationship strong and tightened and close, even across a distance. And we've seen it perhaps most clearly over the last few years in the evolving relationship that we here at the Unitarian Church have developed with the folks who run the Española Pathways Shelter. It started off as just a charity we selected for our Share the Plate program. And then the founder and director of the shelter came up here to talk to us, share his life story and why it was important to him and the work that he was doing. And again, like our Romanian friends, followed by an invitation for us to come and see. And a few years ago, several of us did take advantage of that opportunity. We went down to Española. We went to the shelter. We went with the people who run it. We heard their stories, their struggles. We saw what they were doing and were able to do and still wanted to do in the community. We were able to touch some form of the good they were doing and the depth of the work that they were doing. And those of us who went down, came back, profoundly changed in a way wanted to know how we could draw even closer, do more, be part of the solution with them.
when we get proximate, when we get personal with the people we care about and want to help, when we eliminate that barrier of distance, everything becomes real. We shift ourselves from the conceptual to the absolutely personal because we can't look in another's eyes and turn away. This is how we change the narrative, and the narrative has been changing here even. We have developed more resources and social services for the county that were lacking. We see more and more community charity groups popping up to address specific issues here within our community. You see the ministers of Los Alamos getting together every month when it doesn't snow and sharing with one another what we are doing and meeting those people, getting proximate to those people who are doing the work and getting their hands dirty and finding out how we can help. Stevenson again we cannot make progress in creating a more just society, healthier communities, if we allow ourselves to be disconnected from the people who are most vulnerable, from the poor, the neglected, the incarcerated, the condemned. If you're trying to make policies in the criminal justice space but have never met someone who's in jail or prison, you haven't been to a jail or prison, you're going to fail. We cannot allow ourselves to be disconnected from the people who live inside the issues we are trying to tackle. Or to put it a little more succinctly, using the words of Shane Claiborne, a Christian evangelist and worker of poverty around the country who once traveled around the country visiting warehouses and shelters and the people who were doing the work and making a difference and getting close in a vegetable oil powered refurbished school bus with a sign on the side that said Jesus for president. An interesting dude. But someone who's doing the work of getting close and seeing what's happening. He says, we will never really make poverty history until we make poverty personal. We can't fix it if we don't own it up deep here. So the narrative changes. And up here, because of how that narrative shifts, we're less and less seeing people as them them down in the valley who need our help, but us up here living side by side with people who are affected. Not some outside invasion of some marauding army of the poor, but something present and ever-present and systemic in our own community. And whereas the Protestant work ethic might say that poverty is a moral failing on the part of the person who is in poverty 
we're able to shift that narrative again to say, yes, poverty is a moral failure, but it is the collective, our moral failure, our failure as a community to not have a system where everyone can flourish. And that's where the biggest narrative change comes in, moving from objects to subjects among us. No more asking the question, why did they come here? Instead, now the question, how did that communal we, how did we create an environment where our neighbors cannot thrive? cannot flourish. And when we start asking those questions, then, then we really start living into the covenant that is implied by our principles, by our shared values. And then the other become not problems to solve, but people to love and cherish and want the best for. You know, John, that's all well and good, but, you know, I can't take a lot of time off to go on these field trips to go visit these places and get up close and personal. I can't take a week off from work and spend a bunch of money to fly over to Transylvania to go meet these people in person. I can't go to Mexico right now because they're talking about shutting down the borders. How am I supposed to get up close and personal with these people that I care about and I want to help? Well, here's the deal. We don't have to wait for the invitation first up to get close. And we don't have to get in our cars. We don't have to get on a plane. We don't even necessarily have to cross the street. We can get close and personal by just shifting our own internal narrative about how we approach the other. Stop and consider, have I made a person into an object? Have I mistaken the poor for a discrete population? Am I making the right assumptions in this instance? Am I challenging what I think I know in this instance? Have I, being human, mistaken my imperfect opinion on the matter for the absolute truth? And can I imagine myself in the situation that my neighbor is in? Can I imagine myself one paycheck away from being in those dire straits? Can I remember a time in my life where I might have been on the brink or in it? 
Stephen also says we, we have to do uncomfortable things to make a difference, and I think there's plenty of discomfort just in that activity alone of just challenging ourselves on the premise of what we know and what we assume. All of our values together and the covenant that they imply amongst us as Unitarian Universalists are all geared towards all of us together, building at last the beloved community that we dream about but isn't yet true. And it starts here with the work for equity. It starts here with demolishing the idea of the other. It starts with us being brave enough to get up close and personal with those we wish to welcome into our circle. May it be so.